dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. Why, thank you, 1940s bandsinger. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Hour of Doom. And Bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom's Survival Medicine Podcast, a nourishing nook of nicety in a nasty world. And the number one show about medical preparedness, because it's the only show about medical preparedness, <laughs> I think. And who am I? I am Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net. And here's my wonderful co-host, Nurse Amy. Hi, Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And beauteous purveyor of quality <laughs> medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. She's so bright, I gotta wear shades. <laughs> now on this show, you're gonna get the conventional wet medical wisdom. You're gonna get the unconventional medical wisdom, plus at no extra charge, the cantankerous ravings of a man arguing with himself in front of the mirror. But hey, whatever it takes to get your family medically prepared for times of trouble, you're going to hear it right here. But first, got to listen to this. Absolutely. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care wherever and whenever it is available. Or don't, if a little societal mayhem doesn't bother you. But answer me this. Who's going to keep your family safe and healthy when the you-know-what really hits the fan? The hospitals are out of commission, the doctors are gone, and someone you care about is sick or injured. Maybe from a dog bite. Hey. Hey, Patty. <laughs> She's talking. We're taking care of preparedness Patty today, our daughter's great Pyrenees, and she is a beautiful white dog, a great. And she's talking to us. Big old dog, what and kind of she likes are to we talk. Having? Hello. She's saying, "What are you talking into uh, the computer for?" You hear that? <laughs> <laughs> so funny. All right, go ahead, baby. All right. Well, hey, you know what? All I can say is, don't look at me. I am just some guy. On the radio, trying to take care of a dog. <laughs> it's you, friend. You and I both know that when it's least expected, you're elected to take care of your family. So get off your duff and learn some stuff. And why not get some medical supplies while you're at it? I'll Patty bet agrees it, with all of that, honey. I'll bet Amy or Patty can tell you where you can find some. Absolutely. Store.doomandbloom.net. That's where right. you'll find the best medical kits in the world. That's right. And no dog hair, we promise. No. <laughs> I want to mention that the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook ranks a whopping 4.8 out of 5 on Amazon, over 2,700 reviews. Wow. It's still high on bestseller lists throughout the country. If you haven't checked it out yet, you'll find the black and white version on Amazon and the color version only at store.doomandbloom.net. We even have a color spiral-bound version on our website. You know, it appears that the fentanyl epidemic has gotten so bad in New York City that the authorities have requested that all residents carry Narcan, generic name naloxone, to treat overdose victims in the street. Narcan is an opioid antagonist that can reverse the life-threatening effects of overdoses. The city health department is offering residents training on how to use the drug, which is now over-the-counter. 
One health official opined that Narcan should be in everybody's first aid kit and even available at subway stations and other public venues. The catalyst for what once would have been considered a pretty outlandish request was the death of a two-year-old boy who died after exposure to fentanyl. But that's not all. New York City has experienced a 12% jump in overdose deaths just in the last year. That's over 3,000 people that are no longer here today because of overdoses that happened in 2022. So why is this happening? Well, failure to control our southern border has led to the importation of a whole slew of dangerous drugs, heroin, fentanyl, and more by drug cartels. It's said that the cartels are now the fifth largest employer in all of Mexico. If you're wondering who's controlling the border, honestly, it's not the Mexican government. Certainly not us. It's them. So would you carry some of this life-saving nasal spray and act to save a life? I mean, I get a lot of people who say, no way, they're traveling a dangerous road, these people who are taking drugs. And for a junkie, death is where the journey ends. But forgive me, the medic in me says to always try to save a life, even one that's being wasted on drugs. Opioids are so deadly because of their tendency to interrupt your ability to breathe, especially when taken in high doses or in combination with other recreational drugs. The family medic should recognize the signs and symptoms of someone who's overdosing. You would expect to see things like shallow, slow breathing, a slow pulse, pale and cold skin, blue lips or fingernails, and altered mental status. Now, unlike the dilated pupils you see with some drugs, opioids cause pupils to be pinpoint in appearance. If you encounter someone who's overdosing, they need Narcan immediately. Now, fortunately, the drug can return normal breathing within two to three minutes in a lot of cases. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, has specifically approved the use of Narcan as an over-the-counter nasal spray, and it's very effective when given correctly. Nasal uh, spray with Narcan usually comes in a package with two doses. If the first dose is ineffective, you can give a second dose without worrying about any additional side effects. Even if you're not sure that they use opioids, give them the Narcan anyway because it doesn't cause harm. It's safe to take even when you don't have opioids in your system. It's best to give Narcan as soon as possible because the longer you wait, the more likely it might be too late for the victim. Someone who begins breathing again after receiving Narcan can relapse after 30 to 90 minutes if they have had very high amounts of opioids in their system. Because of this, it's important that you call emergency services, stay near the person until help arrives to make sure they don't deteriorate. Now, I must warn you that these guys usually wake up agitated, confused, and sometimes very combative, so you might have to keep a distance while you're observing them. So here's how to administer Narcan. You lay the person flat on their back, making sure their mouth is clear and the airways open. Open the outer package of Narcan, peel back the inner packaging of the nasal spray. Hold the spray container with your thumb at the bottom of the plunger and your pointer and middle fingers on either side of the nozzle. Tilt the person's head back, support the back of the neck, and insert the nozzle into a nostril. Your index and middle fingers should touch the bottom of the nose. Firmly press the plunger to deliver the dose into the person's nose. Remove the device once it's delivered. There's only one dose per spray device, so don't press the plunger until you're ready to deliver the drug. In extreme cases, you may still need to support their breathing with CPR techniques after the first dose is given. If the person starts breathing again and becomes responsive in short order, the Narcan worked. You can rotate them on their side in the CPR recovery position and monitor them. Now, if in two to three minutes the person's still unresponsive or not breathing, administer the second dose. You should be able to find Narcan at your local pharmacy. It might even be available for free. Every state and insurance plan has their own rules 
But one thing is sure, it's going to be an over-the-counter drug. You don't need a prescription. Until things change for the better on the border, expect the opioid epidemic to continue unabated. There's apparently no interest in the current administration to solve our border crisis, leaving cities like New York to beg their citizens to save overdose victims on their own. That still means 100,000 or more Americans will die every year for the foreseeable future. Seems strange to say it, but maybe it's not such a bad idea to have some Narcan around in these troubled times. Let me say something about a, a couple of the drugs that are actually causing these overdoses. Everybody's heard about the overdose deaths from exposure to fentanyl. But how much do you really know about it? Why has it become so commonplace? What's the attraction? I want to spend a few minutes on this killer and, and a new drug called Trank as well. It may seem like it came out of the blue to you, but I've known about fentanyl my entire medical career. My professional experience with it involved use during general anesthesia on my patients undergoing surgery and epidurals during labor. It's also been used for pain relief and sedation and battlefield casualties and cancer patients, sometimes given in the form of lollipops, believe it or not. Fentanyl became so popular that by 2017, it was the most frequently used synthetic opioid in medicine. In 2019, two years later, more than 1 million prescriptions for it were being written annually. Now, by two years after that, 2021, fentanyl accounted for more than 71,000 opioid deaths in the United States. The vast majority of recent cases are linked to fentanyl from Mexico, which some say have raw materials that might have originated in China. Now, how much fentanyl is out there? The Department of Justice reported the seizure of more than 10 million fentanyl pills and approximately 1,000 pounds of fentanyl powder in the five months from May through September of last year. What do they say? We catch 10% of the drugs that go over the border? If that's the case, that's a lot of fentanyl that's still out there. So why has a drug like fentanyl become widespread when it kills so many users? Well, for a drug dealer, fentanyl has some attributes that make it preferable to, even to heroin. Fentanyl is more potent, it acts faster, it's cheaper to produce, easier to transport to the market in the form of pills or lozenges. It even comes in nasal sprays, eye drops, even skin patches. It's so inexpensive, it's often used to mix in with more expensive opiates, so a lot of users don't even know that they're taking it. For the user, fentanyl acts like other opioids, but on steroids. Once in the body, fentanyl attaches itself to nerve receptors that control pain response and emotions. The drug provides strong pain relief and creates this intense euphoric high due to the neurotransmitter dopamine. The high can last 12 hours or more. It's super addictive and leads to serious physical dependence in addition to the need for higher doses over time to get the same high. As it can't be identified by sight, taste, or smell, it would require a lab analysis or a special test strip to identify the drug itself. Cutting drugs with fentanyl causes a user to inadvertently be given a dose much stronger than ordinarily expected. Indeed, accidental exposure to fentanyl, even to skin, can be lethal in doses as low as 0.25 milligrams. Compare that to the size of a penny. It's about 20 times smaller. As if we needed more bad news on the drug front, there's a common livestock sedative which has now a street name called Trank, and it's made its way into the other dangerous drugs like fentanyl. It's also called xylazine. This stuff is used by veterinarians on cattle and horses to relieve pain, relax muscles, and sedate them for surgical procedures. It's not FDA approved for any purpose whatsoever in human medicine, but it's not yet illegal. A prescription from a vet is all you need to get your own supply. Xylazine is not an opioid, but it acts like it. Like opioids, it's highly addictive, 
slows breathing and heart rate, and increases the risk of fatal overdoses. Causes the user to black out for hours. Once they come to, they immediately crave more. Trank is unlike other drugs in one major way. It also causes the formation of nasty skin ulcers and abscesses. Some of them are quite horrific looking. Many harden into these painful, crusty, blackened sores called eschar. Indeed, some call xylazine or Trank the zombie drug for the way its users look. The skin effects may be so severe as to require amputations. Withdrawal from the drug is as bad as many narcotics, but xylazine is not an opioid. This is significant because you can reverse a fentanyl, heroin, morphine, or oxycodone overdose with Narcan, but you might not be able to revive a Trank user with it. It's not certain where street xylazine is originating today, but China, Mexico, India, and Russia are all prime suspects. It also may come from domestic manufacturers who supply veterinarians, and that's one of the difficulties associated with controlling this drug's distribution, the widespread nature of its use in veterinary practices. It's popular in large animal medicine to allow vets to stitch wounds, grind down molars, treat damaged or infected hooves, preserving the drug's access for veterinarians while shutting down supplies to drug dealers that might be very hard to do. Fentanyl and xylazine are just two of the many street drugs out there that are killing our citizens. As long as we don't have a policy that cuts down on its importation, expect more than 100,000 opioid overdoses every year. And now, a word from our sponsor. Hello, citizen. Are you feeling low? Don't have it like you used to? Has your get-up-and-go got up and went? Well, consider the wholesome goodness of Prevalaxian Balance, a healthy mix of fruits, vegetables, sleep aids, and Alzheimer drugs in one tiny capsule. Made from probiotic macronutrients, which are processed down to a fine ash, Prevalaxian Balance will give you the pep you need to run that marathon and get a good night's sleep 10 minutes later. Mix with water and you can use it to seal that hole in your canoe. Prevalaxian Balance, your natural road to good health, a better night's sleep, and a higher IQ. Available wherever cure-alls are sold. Hey, we love to answer questions for our friends and listeners out there. Some of the questions that we have can be about some pretty unique topics. Today, the question is from a reader who's asking about tick disorders, especially in children. If you have a question for either me or Nurse Amy, make sure that you send us an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. This week's question for the Expert Council comes from Kieran, who writes... Hi, I would be interested in Doc Bone's opinion and views on ticks, their causes and treatments in children. Thanks, Kieran. Kieran, having a child with a tick disorder is certainly concerning for any parent, but many people at some point experience spasm-like movements of particular muscles. These movements, known as ticks, are generally harmless and temporary. In some cases, however, they can be quite noticeable, as with the outburst seen with Tourette's syndrome. Sometimes they can be invisible, such as abdominal tensing, toe movements, things like that but in any case, they can affect your quality of life. First, let's let people know just what ticks are. A tick is a sudden and repetitive motor movement or vocalization, usually brief and resembling a normal gesture, just over and over and usually without warning. There are two types of ticks, motor ticks and vocal ticks. These short-lasting sudden movements or sounds occur during what is otherwise normal behavior. Ticks are often repetitive, with numerous successive occurrences of the same action. For example, someone with a tick might blink their eyes, shrug their shoulders, or twitch their nose repeatedly. Motor ticks can be classified as either simple or complex. Simple motor ticks may include movements such as eye blinking or head jerking. Complex motor ticks consist of a series of movements performed in the same order. For example, a child might reach out and touch a specific toy or person repeatedly. 
Simple vocal tics might be clearing your throat, sniffing, or grunting. Examples of complex vocal tics may be repeating what another person just said, or sudden inappropriate language. While people of all ages can experience tics, they're most often seen in children, occurring in about 20% of all kids at one time or another. They're more common in boys than girls. Now, interestingly enough, tics are thought not to be involuntary movements, but an involuntary movement. There's a difference. With an involuntary movement, a person is able to temporarily suppress the action. This suppression, however, results in discomfort that worsens until it's finally relieved by performing the tick, almost like needing to scratch an itchy spot. Children are not aware of this urge as much as adults are. No one knows exactly why ticks occur. Stress and sleep deprivation seem to play a role in some cases, but are also known to increase as a result of boredom or high-energy emotions. These include negative emotions such as anxiety or even positive emotions such as excitement or anticipation. Relaxation, believe it or not, may result in a tick increase. For example, watching television or using a computer, while concentration on an absorbing activity often leads to a decrease. There's a report, as a matter of fact, of a surgeon who had severe tics but was able to suppress them while doing surgery. While many people use the term tick and twitch interchangeably, there are actually differences between these two types of movements. Unlike tics, the majority of muscle twitches are isolated occurrences, not repeated actions. They're also entirely involuntary and cannot be controlled or suppressed. An example of a muscle twitch is an eyelid spasming uncontrollably. This often occurs repeatedly over a sustained period of time and occurs most often in adults rather than children. It's thought to be due to the misfiring of certain cells in an area of the brain. The majority of tics have very little effect on a person's quality of life, but sometimes they can occur often enough to be disruptive and troubling. When they do, they can affect many areas of a person's life, including school, work, and social life. Doctors use four characteristics to identify and diagnose tic disorders. The age when tics began, the duration of the tics, the severity of the tics, and whether tics are motor or vocal in nature. There are three levels of severity. Transient tic disorder. This most commonly occurs in youth that affects up to 20% of school-aged children. Transient tic disorder is characterized by the presence of one or more tics for at least one month but less than one year. The majority of tics seen in this disorder are motor tics, although vocal tics may sometimes be present. Then there's chronic motor or vocal tic disorder, which occurs in less than 5% of kids. While transient tics disappear within a year, chronic tics can last for much longer. They may be either motor or vocal, but not really seen to be both. For a diagnosis of chronic tic disorder, symptoms must begin before age 18. Finally, there's Tourette syndrome. This syndrome is the most severe tic disorder. It's characterized by the presence of both motor tics and vocal tics. Symptoms typically begin when children are between 5 and 18 years of age. The severity of Tourette syndrome often changes with time. There may be periods of reduced tic frequency followed by heightened tic activity. Fortunately, many people with Tourette syndrome find that their condition improves as they get older. The evaluation of tics must rule out other movement disorders like Huntington's chorea, dystonia, myoclonus, things that are medical in nature, and movements seen in conditions like obsessive-compulsive disorder, or even autism. This isn't always easy. So in normal times, a full evaluation by a specialist is warranted. Besides actual genetic or innate medical conditions that cause them, they can be induced with chronic drug use, like cocaine. They can be induced by head trauma, by strokes, and even carbon monoxide poisoning. 
Tests ordered to evaluate tics disorder include certain blood tests and neurologic studies like EEGs to evaluate brain waves and MRIs of the brain. Unfortunately, no clear medical guidelines exist for the best course of treatment for tics, and every doctor has his or her preferred course of action for treating a patient's tic disorder. Most doctors, however, start with a wait-and-see approach. Tics often operate in a cycle, waxing and waning every several weeks. The majority of tics go away on their own after a few cycles, meaning no treatment is needed in these cases. When necessary, however, medications may help, but these are often very strong drugs like Haldol or Risperidone, both antipsychotics, or meds used to treat ADHD like Stratera and Guanfacine. Some report improvement with some antidepressant-type drugs. These medications all have serious side effects that can be worse than the tics, so that should be started with the absolute lowest dose. The therapy of choice, however, for tic disorders is called Habit Reversal Therapy, or HRT. In HRT, the individual learns to recognize the trigger or urge preceding the tic. Once you've successfully identified the trigger, the patient can learn to respond to it by engaging in an alternative behavior, reducing the tension without resorting to the tic. HRT can be highly effective in both children and adults. Multiple studies have shown up to 50% improvement after just six weeks of such therapy. Nutritional changes have also been recommended as an alternative. Taking omega-3 fatty acids, magnesium, vitamin B6, and avoiding caffeine, sugar, and soda is supposed to help. Exercise can also help relieve stress that worsens tick activity with other motor activity. I hope this helps. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, do us a favor and check out our entire line of quality medical kits and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. And don't forget the latest fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, available in black and white on Amazon and in color and spiral-bound versions at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Okay, well, from an unusual topic, tic disorders, we're going to go to something that's going to be very common, especially in survival situations, that is dealing with open wounds. We all know that open wounds in off-grid settings will most likely be dirty, so what can you do to decrease the risk of infection? You can give antibiotics, and there are plenty of aquarium and other products on the market that are readily available online, but you want to save those for when you really need them. And there's an other way to lower infection rates that's simpler and may save your precious supply of medicines. And that's irrigating the wound in a proper and thorough manner. When talking about wound irrigation, many people picture someone steadily pouring water over a wound from a bottle or a container. While that's one way to do it, it's not the most efficient way. What's your goal? That's to get out the dirt and debris, right? You want to get out the contaminants and enhance wound healing. And irrigation is not just pouring water, antiseptic solution, or normal saline into a wound before you bandage it. you got to do it right to get the best effect. You want to apply some pressure to those fluids you use to flush out the wound. If you do, you'll do several good things. Remove debris, surface bacteria, pus or other drainage, and more. Now, we all have surface bacteria on our skin that's supposed to be there. So why bother trying to remove it when you have an open wound? Because bacteria that naturally lives on the skin can be incredibly dangerous if it gets into your circulation. Irrigation decreases the chance your skin bacteria will reach your bloodstream. Irrigating a wound also helps maintain a moist wound environment to help promote optimal wound healing. Newborn cells are what we call hydrophilic, meaning that they love water. Keeping a wound that's healing in on its own, a process called granulation, you want to keep that moist because it speeds healing 
and eventual recovery. Almost all wounds that you're going to encounter can and should be irrigated as soon as possible after your initial evaluation. Make sure you know what you're dealing with. The exception would be an actively bleeding wound. That's something you've got to control before anything else. Remember to wash your hands before you start if you have time. If you anticipate a lot of splatter, you might want to use eye protection as well. So what should you irrigate with? If plain water is the only thing available, make sure you disinfected it first. Water should be drinking quality if it's going to be used on an open wound. The amount of pressure should be between 5 and 15 PSI. That's going to be hard to figure out. Maybe using a large bore needle, maybe a 16 gauge on a 60 to 100 cc syringe probably would work to give you about that pressure. Most consider normal saline solution to be the gold standard for irrigation. It can be made actually quite easily. You don't have to necessarily buy the commercially available online versions. It's called normal because it approximates the natural salt content of human blood. Sterile normal saline, although like I said, you can get it online, you can home make it as well. So to make sterile saline, you're going to need a pan with a lid, salt, water, sterile jars, and sterile lids. To make, make it, begin with a liter of water in a pan with a lid. Add two teaspoons of salt. Place a lid on the pan and bring the salt water to a boil. Boil for about a minute or two, I would guess. Uh, you let the solution cool in the pan with the lid on, and then you pour the solution into sterile jars and close with sterile lids. So sterile normal saline produced this way should last about 30 days with the lids closed up to 24 hours after opening, although it's best used as soon as it's produced. Now I mentioned the drinkable water that works for irrigation purposes. It's best for non-infected wounds, although it's acceptable to perform an immediate first cleaning with things like hydrogen peroxide or alcohol. Later cleanings should not use these very concentrated products because new cells are trying to grow and they do this best in a moist environment that doesn't dry them out. And unfortunately, things like hydrogen peroxide alcohol will do that. An alternative antiseptic solution that is easy to make using common storage supplies is Dakin solution. First used during World War I, Dakin solution is used to disinfect soft tissue wounds such as pressure sores or embed-ridden patients. It's inexpensive to put together and helps dissolve dead cells. Dakin solution is simply composed of sodium hypochlorite solution, that's household bleach, sodium bicarbonate, baking soda, and boiled tap water. Although Dakin solution is a little bit out of favor, I mean it was used primarily during World War I, it is actually effective and something that the survival medic certainly could use in times of trouble. You certainly want to warm it up a little bit before using it on the wound and you want to have water or sterile saline or Dakin solution at about 98 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit before you use it on the wound itself. Lower concentrations are best if you use it for more than 7 to 10 days, let's say. You'll find the specific formulas on our website or in our fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. Hey, Nurse Amy here. Today I'm going to talk a little bit about, well, not a little bit, a lot, about heartburn and GERD. I know people have heard of that. That's actually gastroesophageal reflux disease. That's what GERD is, G-E-R-D. That's the letters they use. You'll sometimes hear the doctor say, oh, you might have GERD. It occurs when partially digested foods, acidic stomach juices, or just any kind of stomach fluid goes up into the tube connecting your mouth and your stomach, known as the esophagus. And it's coming from the stomach and going up. It's kind of like a backwash. 
It's also been referred to as acid reflux if it's just like a one time or you just get it every once in a while. And it can really irritate the lining of your esophagus. I mean, I've had heartburn that feels like a heart attack. It is just searing pain. It's it's almost indescribable if you have never had a bad case of heartburn. If you've had like a little bit, you say, oh, you know, I have like a little burning in my chest or sometimes you'll get a little taste of acid in your mouth if you wake up in the middle of the night with it. But when you have serious heartburn, it's intense. You you want to take your hands and you want to push on your chest because you feel like maybe that will help relieve it. But you get a bad taste in your mouth. If you have it for long enough, that acid that gets into your mouth, especially at night if you're sleeping, can actually rot teeth. I mean, this is serious. Besides doing all kinds of crazy damage to your esophagus. And what happens with repeated heartburn episodes, people who get it a few times a week or even more than twice a week, you can have damages. You can even have scarring. And also, having that heartburn, unfortunately, can damage the sphincter that's actually shut down between the esophagus and the stomach acid in that sphincter that's supposed to be closed off after you eat or after you drink to prevent this heartburn starts getting damaged itself. So this whole cycle of of having heartburn, damaging that sphincter can lead to just repeated episodes making the sphincter less active, less tightening, and you get more heartburn. And the more heartburn you get, the more problems with the sphincter, and then you have this whole uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease. And we'll talk about some of the symptoms of those in a second. Um, it can affect, just so you know, not just old people, but any age, including infants. Just be aware that infants can get heartburn. So that crying that you have from the baby and you're like, I fed you, I changed you, I'm holding you, you're in comfortable clothes, you've been bathed, there's you know, you're in a good temperature, you're not overdressed, you're not underdressed. Maybe there's something going on with their stomach, you know, you don't dismiss those things. Many people simply experience, you know, just the regular acid reflux, just every once in a while. Again, that's just called heartburn. So you get it from time to time and it doesn't really cause all of this damage that we're talking about. But when you have that burning sensation in your chest sometimes it goes up into your throat and that's what I'm talking about sometimes you get it into your mouth even and you you get it like a bad taste so again if you have this over and over for some period of time then it starts to be called GERD and that's what the diagnosis of that your doctor will give you most people are able to manage the discomfort of GERD or heartburn with lifestyle changes and even some medications, and we'll talk about those. And although it is uncommon, there is occasionally somebody who may need surgery to ease their symptoms. It's that bad. And if you've had heartburn on a regular basis, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, you do just about anything to get rid of it. It is awful, awful. I've had it myself. My husband has experienced it really, really, really bad, really bad, like, daily for an extended period of time. So what are symptoms? Uh, Let's talk about the symptoms of GERD. 
it's it, again it's crossover depending on how many times you have it but if you just have it once you're still going to feel this you might have a burning sensation in your chest which is where they get the word heartburn from it makes sense usually it's after eating and a lot of times it's worse at night or when you lie down because there'll be times when you have this big meal and you go and lay down and then ah, you might burp or you might not burp at all. You might just start feeling this terrible burning in your chest. What's happened is some of that food, some of the acid that that was put out by your stomach to help digest your food, it puts out a lot of extra acid after you eat. Somehow that's coming up. And again, it might go just to your chest area. It might go up into your throat. Then you get this burning feeling in your throat. And then it might even go into your mouth. And then you're, taste it. What is that taste? That's acid from your stomach, which is not supposed to be in your esophagus and not supposed to be in your mouth. Uh, So it causes a backwash, regurgitation of food or like a sour liquid. Again, you might taste that. Uh, You have upper abdomen or chest pain. Again, it can be mild. It can be pretty bad. You might have trouble swallowing, which is the technical term is dysphagia. And you might even have a sensation of like a lump in your throat. And that could be some food or food particles or food particles with acid in your throat. If you experience nighttime acid reflux, you might also experience, and this is what's happened to my husband and actually me for a period of time, an ongoing cough. And so you're coughing through the day and you're like, well, why am I coughing? I'm not sick. I don't have a sinus infection. I don't have, you know, whatever's going around at this time. But you cough or you feel like this mucus in your throat. Like, or, and even on your voice box. So you might feel hoarse or, or kind of gurgly. And if you clear your throat or you give a good hacking cough, you can get some mucus up out of your voice cords and then your your voice clears up. You're not so, you know, gurgly. But that mucus is a reaction to the acid that was in your throat burning you probably the night before or multiple nights before. So your body puts out mucus to try and heal and protect that area. So you start feeling like you have laryngitis or there's something wrong with your vocal cords. Another thing that can happen to people is you might get new or worsening asthma. Something that most people don't link with heartburn. But think of this, if you have acid coming up into your esophagus, it could actually drip some of that into your airways and get into your lungs And your stomach acid, again, is not supposed to be anywhere but in the stomach. And can you imagine how irritating that is to the lining of your lungs? So then, of course, what happens? You get the mucus reaction, just like on your throat, your your voice box. And that mucus buildup causes the symptoms of asthma. And, of course, if you have asthma, it certainly makes it worse. And you're like, my gosh. I'm on this inhaler and that inhaler. And by the way, inhalers can relax the sphincter right above your stomach and allow the stomach acid to come up. So now you've got asthma, you're taking an inhaler, it's relaxing the sphincter, 
and now acid is getting up into your lungs through your airway and now your asthma is getting worse you're like my gosh i'm taking this this um medication it's supposed to be opening me allowing me to breathe better and i'm feeling worse so you this is something you need to talk to your doctor about Speaking of doctors, when to see a doctor. Seek immediate medical care if you have chest pain and you have shortness of breath or jaw or arm pain. Now, if you know it's heartburn, say you take your medication. It's one of these things I'm going to mention, one of these, you know, Tums or antacids or something, and it goes away. That's not a heart attack. But if you take your medication that normally works for you, whatever it is, over-the-counter, prescription, whatever it is that you're doing, and that doesn't work, and you've taken what you can take, because there's a max on all these medicines, and you still have chest pain, go to the hospital, okay? Joe's father, the last words out of his mouth before he passed to Joe, standing there in front of him, was, son, I thought it was heartburn. That's it. That lingers in my husband's head. So guess what happens every time my husband has heartburn? He immediately thinks he's having a heart attack until proven otherwise. So we try to make sure that my husband doesn't have heartburn very often. Knock on wood, which is what I just did. So make an appointment with your doctor. So those are the go to the hospital things. If you think it's a heart attack, you've got other symptoms, or it's just not going away, it may just feel like heartburn. Heart attack can just feel like heartburn. So don't confuse them and be a man and just stay home and take it. If you're like, this is not going away, normally it goes away from Tums. Go to the hospital, please. Don't take a chance. It's not worth it. But make an appointment with your doctor if you experience severe or frequent GERD symptoms, like we talked about, the burning sensation, the backwash, the chest pain or trouble swallowing or sensation in your, your throat. If you take over-the-counter medications for heartburn more than twice a week. So that's pretty frequent because you're having an issue. You're having it constantly. You're having it all the time more than twice a week. you got a problem and you should go talk to somebody. Now, are they going to put you on some prescription medicine? Probably not, but they're going to give you some hints probably very similar to what I'm going to talk about. So who's at risk? Conditions that can increase your risk of GERD or heartburn even. Obesity. Think about it. Pushing on the stomach. Anything that pushes on the stomach, including your fat, can push the acid out of the stomach up into the esophagus and again, maybe into your airways, maybe into your mouth. It's fat on your belly so if you've got a big belly and everyone knows if you have a big belly or not we can self-diagnose that we know if our belly's too big or not that is a risk factor for heartburn bulging at the top of the stomach up above the diaphragm could be a hiatal hernia if you've got a weird pooch up there just underneath your your chest go see a doctor you might have a hernia. Get that checked out. And that's something that probably needs surgery. Pregnancy can cause this. Again, what is happening? you got a big old baby there that's pushing on your stomach on everything, basically, and causes heartburn. A lot of pregnant women get heartburn. That's okay. It happens. And you're going to ask your OBGYN or your nurse midwife, 
your practitioner, what is safe for me to take during pregnancy because not all medications are okay to take during pregnancy and you want to be safe for the baby. So medications that I might mention today doesn't mean that it's safe for pregnancy. Okay, I'm not going to go through every side effect and everybody who can't take this and that. Please, if you're pregnant, always talk to your practitioner, whoever that might be, about whether you can take this or that or how much. Can I take Tums? How many can I take? Is this okay? Connective tissue disorders, such as scleroderma, um, anything that causes tissue to relax can cause you to have problems with heartburn. If you have been diagnosed with delayed stomach emptying, which could be caused by a lot of things, um, sometimes chemotherapy can cause delayed stomach emptying. Or, or sometimes, actually, it can cause it to go too fast also. So you have dumping. Dumping is when it goes from the stomach into the intestines too fast. Your enzymes and your stomach acid have not broken and done broken down the food and done its job because each part of your digestive system has its job and it needs to work. So if it empties too fast, you're going to have issues too. You're not going to have heartburn, but you're going to have... Um, absorption issues and you may have problems with malnutrition. Factors that can aggravate acid reflux include smoking. Irritants like smoking can cause damage to the sphincter. Not recommended for any reason. I just don't. Eating a large meal and or eating at night. Some people can eat a large meal at lunch and get heartburn. Some people only get heartburn at night. And and a lot of people, for them, their dinner is the largest meal. So then you're putting a lot of extra food into the stomach. So they do recommend smaller meals broken down through the day. So you're not just eating, you know, a steak and a baked potato and broccoli and a salad and, I don't know, some bread or rolls all at the same time. Break down your food, eat smaller meals I don't recommend a lot of those foods we just talked about. But if you're going to eat them, just eat smaller portions and don't eat late at night. I'm going to talk about what Joe and I do later also, but I'm just going to mention this real fast. We don't eat a meal after 7 o'clock, literally. If we have not eaten by 7 o'clock, we will we'll eat a sandwich. We'll literally like quickly make a turkey and cheese sandwich, we don't toast it, we don't anything fat, we're just that, putting food in our stomach. Because we know if we keep food on our stomach too late, then that may come up during the night. So we need to get that in our stomach. We both try to eat and finish by 6 p.m. And that means I'm going to have to cook dinner soon because right now it's 4.53. I've already put some food out, so I know what we're going to eat. So we don't have to eat too late. So by 6 o'clock, we're, we're, we're trying to eat at that point and be finished, long finished by 7. But if by 7 we've just forgotten, got busy, whatever, then we're just doing something fast and quick and certainly not big and heavy. Certain beverages such as alcohol and coffee can cause, you know, relaxation or, or irritation of the stomach and, you know, come back up on you. So if you do have this issue, 
try to cut down, avoid coffee, alcohol, caffeine even. Um, those are the big things. Coffee is, is pretty acidic, especially like espresso. So you don't want to be putting some acidic, even soda. That's another thing. Do not drink soda if you have to drink it. Drink it earlier. Don't drink it with dinner. In fact, I don't recommend, and this is this is from when my mom had cancer when I was 14 to 17. She was told not to eat, I'm sorry, not to drink fluids with her food because, again, she had that stomach dumping because of the cancer and the chemo. Don't drink during meals. I think personally that if you drink a lot of fluids with a lot of food, that's a lot of sloshing going on there. Think about that. If you put that in a in a bowl and you mixed it all up with all the fluids you drank, especially soda, so acidic. Don't drink soda at night. That's a lot of sloshing. Try to drink most of your water during the day. You can drink some with dinner. And then if you're going to drink after, which, you know, I don't want you guys to get dehydrated, take sips. Don't drink like, oh, I haven't had any water and I need to drink half a glass of water or a whole glass of water. I don't think that's a good idea. I think you should add that to your stomach in little bits so it can absorb it and not keep it there. Again, sloshing with the food and the acid, and I think it's just too much. So sips of water after through the night, I don't care if you take a sip every five or ten minutes. You know, drink a little bit, drink a little bit, drink a little bit. Just don't take a whole glass and chug it down. It's too much for your stomach all at once. And I think that may lead to some people having issues with heartburn. Again, ditch the sodas, please, especially at night. Certain medications, I don't think people think about the medicines that they're taking causing heartburn. But I will tell you, aspirin. Aspirin products can irritate the stomach and cause problems with heartburn. Not like the first time you take aspirin, but if you take aspirin on a really regular daily dose or regular dose, you know, a few times a week because, I don't know, you have headaches or whatever you want to take it for, you may have problems with heartburn. So you might want to cut down on your aspirin. I mean, if you have to take it medically, that's what you have to do. Get enteric coated then. It'll help protect it through the stomach. Enteric helps protect it while it's going through the stomach. It'll break down in the intestines. Blood pressure medicines. I don't. I think a lot of us are on blood pressure medicines. Thankfully, knock on wood, I haven't had to take one for a while. Um, Joe still does, but his blood pressure has been really good, so we're cutting back on him. This is all because of weight loss. Um but when I take the Norvast that he takes, I get heartburn. Oh my gosh. Norvask is like, ugh, the cross to bear for heartburn. But if, you know, my blood pressure's up, I got to take it. Thankfully, since I have had the 40 plus pounds gone, I, I don't have to take it very often. For some reason, every once in a while it goes up, but I don't know why. But I don't have to do it. But when I do take Norvask, it it correlates. I take Norvask the next day, I have heartburn. As long as I'm taking Norvask, I have heartburn. And my husband's been on Norvask for, I don't know, 20 years plus, And he had issues with heartburn. I'll, I'll tell you what we're, we're doing to fix him besides the weight loss. Um, a common risk factor for getting GERD is, we talked about a minute ago, asthma. 
An asthmatic attack can cause the relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter, which is the sphincter we've been talking about. That's its official name, LES, lower esophageal sphincter. This relaxation lets the stomach contents flow back up into the esophagus. The effect of some asthmatic treatment drugs like theophylline has been found to worsen GERD symptoms. Again, I talked about this. It relaxes that sphincter and the acid comes up. And GERD may also worsen asthmatic symptoms or asthma symptoms due to the irritation it causes the lungs and airways. And I explained all of that to you guys. So what can we do? Lifestyle changes may help reduce the frequency of acid reflux. Maybe take it away. Maybe it is something you're doing in your life that if you change that, your heartburn goes away. Like, ooh, what a miracle. So first thing we talk about, we talked about obesity. Maintain a healthy weight. Easier said than done. Personally, 35 plus years, 36 plus years, um, I have eaten a healthy diet. I have exercised nearly every single day for all of those years. I read every food label. I refuse to eat fast food. I do not keep soda in my house. I am very conscious of what I eat. I just got fatter and fatter and fatter and fatter. I have a metabolic problem. No doctor can diagnose it. Oh, you don't have diabetes. Oh, you don't have thyroid problems. Blah, blah, blah. Just diet and exercise. Well, folks, when you're eating 1,000 calories a day, max, and you're exercising almost every day, 20 to 30 minutes on an incline, going pretty fast on a treadmill, and you are gaining weight, diet and exercise is not helping you. Okay, and I'm telling this to maybe an endocrinologist who's out there who just believes diet and exercise is just the miracle. It is not. It is not. Let me tell you, there are people like me who have a problem that no one has been able to solve until these weight loss type 2 diabetic medicines came out five years ago, six years ago. They've been using them for type 2 diabetes they caused weight loss. Oh, that was very interesting. They started studying it. I'm talking about Wegovy. Uh, Ozempic and Wegovy are exactly the same medicine. Don't let people tell you, oh, they have the same ingredient. No, they are the exact same thing with a different name. It's a branding thing. They can charge more for Wegovy than they do for Ozempic. It is the same medicine, basically the same dosages. They just rebranded it. I don't know. The FDA required them to do that because it had a new category. They tested the type 2 diabetes, ozempic medicine for weight loss, found that it was significant, rebranded it, called it Wegovy. It is the same stuff. Okay. You can get a prescription for this. If you have a BMI of 27 or higher, I think mine was, I don't know, 33 when I started, horrible. Um, 27 BMI if you have a health issue. Well, I was also on blood pressure medicine consistently last year, June, May, April, because the blood pressure was just out of sight. Um, So I started it. You can also get it without any health issues, without cardiovascular disease, without type 2 diabetes, without high blood pressure, if your BMI is 30 
or higher, which is a whole lot of us out there. It is not cheap if your insurance doesn't cover it. More insurances are starting to cover it. I think it was 27% and now they're saying that it may be upwards of 40% of insurances are starting to cover it. It's not cheap. I'm paying $100 a shot every week. It's a weekly thing. But my gosh, it is a miracle. Uh, Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I am still eating my normal foods. I am still exercising exactly the same way. I am pay attention to my diet. I don't like sugar. I'm not a sweets person. I exercise and three pounds a month, pretty healthy, easy to do with the shots if you are watching your weight. So talk to your doctor if you have a BMI of over 27 with health issues or a BMI of 30 or higher. They also have special programs through Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk, which are the two makers of the Manjero, which is what I'm on now, Eli Lilly, and Wegovia is made by uh, no, no, Novo Norvask and no, Norvisk. Um, both of those companies are trying to help people with coupons. They're trying to help cut down the costs. Um, I actually found one that says it's supposed to be $25 a week. Um, I signed up for the program. I'm going to take it into the pharmacy and see if I can get the $25 a week, which would sure be wonderful. Um, but they're trying to help people. So find out if you can get it. Find out if your insurance covers it. And um, it is not something you stop, just so you know. And this is not for people who want to lose, oh, I want to lose 15 pounds. Oh, I'd really look skinnier if I lost 20 pounds. That's, that's, this is not who you are supposed to be taking this. Okay, this is not to fit into a dress for your high school reunion. This is for people who have serious health issues, serious weight problems, and and nothing is working for them. They've tried metformin. They've tried weight loss programs. They have done the dietitian, and they have diligently exercised. This isn't for the lazy bones who's eating fast food three times a day who says, oh, I'll just go on the shot and I'll lose weight. Well, you're just not going to be healthier if you're still eating that terrible food Um, so straighten yourself out with food get yourself exercising and I'll tell you as you're losing weight you're going to feel like exercising more because you're not going to be so out of breath your knees aren't going to hurt your feet aren't going to hurt your back isn't going to hurt this is a miracle folks I, 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 I know there are people who's like oh just diet and exercise well if you're a fat person who's tried diet and exercise like your whole life for 20 30 15 40 years and it's never worked for you and you're a careful person and you still can't lose weight and you're or you're getting fatter this I'm telling you it's amazing I, I like Wegovy I'm sorry I like Mangera more I took Wegovy for six months I think I had a little bit of depression on the Mangera I feel completely normal I don't feel depressed I feel happy I feel normal like my normal self and for me it, I just like it better so if you can get Mongero, if that's what your doctor gives you great so that's my little lecture about people who think oh yeah you're just going to take that because you want to lose a little weight and get skinny no it's not going to make you skinny by the way nobody's going to get to be 120 pounds on this it does taper off at 68 weeks the study showed that whatever weight loss you've had you were probably plateauing Unless you start off at 400. 
But if you get to a near or at normal BMI, which is about 20, I think it's 24 or 25, if you get close to that, this shot just is probably not going to continue to work for you as far as weight loss. Now, it's going to help you keep this off. Because there are people who have stopped it thinking, oh, I lost all my weight, I'm going to stop it. And guess what? Their body just flips back to the way it was before. Your metabolism slows down to the snail pace that it was instead of being normal. Because that's what I feel. I'm normal now. This shot made me normal. My metabolism was too slow. It made me normal. When you stop it, you're going to get slow again. It's just going to happen. So that's one lecture. Stop smoking. Again, I told you that decreases the lower esophageal sphincter's ability to function properly. You're causing heartburn by smoking. Just stop. Plus, causes a hundred other things. Elevate the head of your bed. Now, ah, yes and no. Um, it's, it's, oh, you can't do it with pillows. Well, you can't do it with pillows if you're only elevating your head. If you do what we do, which is have multiple pillows. I won't tell you how many because you'll think I'm nuts. Um, several pillows. You got to start elevating at your your basically your hips. So you're going to start like with one pillow at your hips, uh, maybe another pillow at your stomach, two pillows under your chest, you know, two pillows under your shoulders, and then maybe three pillows under your head, so that you're at an angle. It's not flat on the bed and head up. Tilting your head forward and putting your chin on your chest is, is not going to help your situation. It's just not. So if you can elevate yourself completely, you know, diagonal, starting from your hips up, then that's going to help you. If you just go lay flat and you put two pillows on your head, it's, you, you're doing nothing. So you need to get the whole top part of your body up, elevated. It helps. It makes sense. It's gravity. Gravity keeps, you know, the stomach stuff down if you lay flat it's it comes up easier so elevate now if you want to you can put something under your bed to elevate your bed we tried that it was just way too uncomfortable um but if you want to you can try that and there are uh wedges that you can put under there don't lie down after a meal again don't just don't lay down stay up Sit, if you can, walk, and I have this thing later about walking, great, even just 10, 15 minutes, take a short walk. Um, I would wait a little bit after you eat, maybe 15 or 30 minutes after you eat, 20 minutes after you eat, so it's not like immediate, and then go for that walk, stroll. I'm not telling you to jog, jump up and down, do jumping jacks, you're strolling, you're walking on the treadmill, you're going at a good pace, you know. You're going, but you're not running. I don't want you to run, okay? Jarring and jumping up down is not going to help you. Eat your food slowly. Let your mouth enzymes help digest the food. They're there for a reason. Remember I said, every part of your digestive system has its job to do. If you shove the food in your mouth, you chew two or three times, and you swallow the big clumps of food, you've not allowed the mouth to, to make the food smaller so the stomach can actually do its job. You throw in big chunks of food at a stomach that's expecting little stuff. You know, chewed up food. It's different. Chew your food slowly. Avoid foods and drinks that trigger your ref uh, your reflux. Common triggers we talked about. Alcohol, chocolate's another one, caffeine, fatty foods. Stop the fatty foods. The fattier the food, the more the heartburn. Cut back on it. Um, apparently peppermint 
can trigger reflux for some people. And then I talked about water. Drink most of your water before dinner, during the day. Sips during dinner. Not, not chugs of water. No acidy drinks during dinner. And then sips. Every few minutes, take a sip. I'm not telling you to dehydrate before you get to bed. That is not the point here. The theory is that anything that causes the esophageal sphincter to open too much, like a snack, like a dessert, like another meal later on, is going to open up that sphincter. And guess what? Now the acid has a freedom to come up. So anything you put in your mouth, the sphincter has to open up to let it go in the stomach, including your drinks. So if you're drinking a whole bunch of sloshy stuff at night, you may be contributing to your um, heartburn. Avoid tight-fitting clothing. This is another thing. Those tight belts, you think you look sexier with the tight belt after you eat? You are putting pressure on your stomach and you may be causing your heartburn. Tight pants. Get all that stuff off. I was going to say something else. Get all that stuff off after you eat. Allow your stomach to be relaxed. Okay, so we're talking about tight clothes. Get comfortable. After you eat, get all, get all that stuff off and get comfortable. Okay, put on a jogging suit since you're going to go walking anyway. <laughs> I don't care. Pajamas. As long as, you know, wherever you're exercising, uh, it's legit to wear and it's okay. <laughs> Your neighbors won't care. Alternative medicine. Um, there's some alternative theories that things might help. Ginger, chamomile. Uh, slippery elm could be recommended to treat heartburn or GERD. However, none have actually been approved, of course, because it's natural remedies, to treat GERD or reverse the damage to the esophagus. So talk to your healthcare provider if you're considering alternative therapies to treat GERD. I will say one thing that might be helpful is papaya enzymes. Uh, my grandmother took those every meal. It helps to digest food helps to break food down again anything that can break the food down help the stomach do its job faster so that it moves on to the next phase which is your lower intestine I'm sorry not your lower intestine <laughs> your small intestine it needs to get into the small intestine before it goes into the large intestine so that's where it's going first so anything that can help digest your food so I don't know consider papaya enzymes it can't hurt technically. Um, other options include, of course, antacid. What do everybody think when they have heartburn? I need to get antacids. Antacids contain calcium carbonate and some of those are mylanta, Rolaids, Tums, and they usually provide quick relief. But antacids alone won't heal an inflamed esophagus that's been damaged by too much stomach acid, repeated heartburn over and over and over and over. It's going to make you feel better, but it's not going to help your esophagus heal. Now, one that we use, Dr. Alton and I found, I don't know how I found it. I was doing some research about heartburn because his heartburn was so bad. I found something called Gaviscon. You'll say, oh, I know that. No. Gaviscon Advance. It has the word advance. If it doesn't have the word advance, it is not the Gaviscon I am talking about. Gaviscon Advance. Without the advance, it is not this medicine. It is made of sodium alginate. A-L-G-I-N-A-T-E. 
and potassium bicarbonate. Sodium alginate, alginate, one of those words. That's what it has. And it has been a miracle for heartburn cure. I mean, he now can take one of those occasionally and it's gone. It is crazy. The stuff has been amazing. Now, you will not find it in American stores. Just want, It's not for sale here. I, however, have found it on Amazon and eBay. Because apparently it's sold in other countries. And I've been lucky enough to find people who, so I don't know how they got it here. I don't care. But it's Gaviscon Advance. Uh, the label is, what would you call this color? Teal. It's not blue. It's not green. It's a blue-green. Uh, the word Advance is in a red box underneath the word Gaviscon. So it's in a smaller font than Gaviscon. But it has a red box with the word advance in it. Unbelievable. Gaviscon Advance. Can't recommend it enough. I have, I bought, <laughs> I saw a deal with, I think there was like six bottles of this and there's 60 tablets each. I, I bought like five of the, I had, I have 30 containers of this because I don't ever want to be without it for the rest of my life and do I believe in the expiration date personally nope can you believe in the expiration date that's up to you but I don't think it breaks down overuse of some antacid can cause side effects so these um, calcium carbonates uh, diarrhea and sometimes kidney problems so you need to be careful about how much of those you're taking too there are other medications to reduce acid production. Um, they're called histamine H2 blockers. Uh, H2 blockers uh, don't quite act as fast as antacids, but they do provide longer relief and may decrease acid production from the stomach for up to 12 hours. That's pretty good. It'll give you a good night's sleep. And there are stronger versions of these over-the-counter medicines by prescription. Uh, H2 receptor antagonist medications are absorbed quickly by the stomach. The drugs may get to peak blood levels in about one to three hours. So they're not as instant as, say, a Gaviscon Advance or a Tums. But once they work, they work for up to 12 hours. Uh, these are called Zantac, Pepsid, Tagamet are just three of them. Uh, so those are H2. Um, medications that block acid production and heal the esophagus are known as protein pump inhibitors. There's a lot of warnings, and I'm going to go through some of these with these medications. So as we get stronger, you get more issues, problems, side effects. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, they're stronger uh, acid blockers than H2 blockers, Those the level two antihistamines, generation two, um, and they allow time for damaged esophageal tissue to heal. They're, the non-prescription are called Prevacid 24HR, Prilosec, OTC, and Nexium 24 hours. Uh, I'm going to talk about Nexium here in case your brain's just exploded. I've got a page to talk about Nexium. Yuck, wow. <laughs> Nexium side effects can include headaches, constipation, nausea, and may lead to kidney damage and bone fractures. And there are lawsuits up the wahoo about this. I don't know if they've been settled or not, but 
Apparently, a lot of people have had problems with kidney damage and bone fractures. FDA warnings about Nexium. The FDA released several warnings about Nexium side effects and contraindications, which were added to the warnings and precautions section of Nexium's drug label. So I can't imagine what their drug label, how large it is. Among the most, just the most recent, okay, not even all of them, the most recent. In November of 2021, the FDA sent a letter to AstraZeneca, which is the company, advising label information include risks of hypocalcemia, uh, that is low calcium, um, hypokalemia, which is low potassium, in patients treated with protein um, uh, pump inhibitors for at least three months. So it just took three months for some of this to happen. Adverse skin reactions, can you imagine you start having weird skin things? And drug-induced hypersensitivity syndrome that can impact organs. Okay, that sounds crazy. In October, in October of 2021, the month before, the FDA issued a warning following reports of erectile dysfunction. I'm sure guys would just love to hear that. And people taking PPIs, including Nexium and generic Nexium. It took no regular regulatory action. It, it, they've done nothing. In November of 2020, the FDA cautioned people about acute, huh, excuse me for a second, I've never said these words, tubo, tubulo interstitial nephritis, which is a type of kidney damage developed for people taking PPIs. In October of 2020, drug makers changed Nexium's drug label to state that people taking products containing Rilpiviran, which is an HIV antiviral medication, should not take Nexium at the same time. Past warnings about Nexium have included potential increased risk of low magnesium levels, vitamin B12 deficiency, um, C. diff associated diarrhea, warnings about rare but serious and possible increased risk, including bone fractures, acute interstitial nephritis, new or worsening lupus, and potential fetal harm. So what have Joe and I done? I've told, peppered this throughout here, telling you some of the things. We've got pillows. We watch what we eat. We have a time that we stop eating. Um, we also started H1 antihistamine Benadryl. Yes, just simple Benadryl. I know it's an H1 on H2. Uh, we take 25 milligrams every night for about the past four weeks, and I'll tell you, Joe's heartburn and his GERD, almost gone. I, I, I'm at a loss for words for the most part because I said, well, hey, we have some Benadryl here and you've got heartburn. Let's see what this does. He's like, oh, I feel better. And the next day we took it before he got heartburn. Oh, wow, I didn't get heartburn tonight. And he is, I think, had heartburn one time. Since then, he's taken like one Gaviscon in four weeks. That is crazy. It's worked better than any other medicine he's tried. Um, plus, he doesn't have to take these protein pump inhibitors, which are scary as heck. Um, it helps us sleep better. What is in Tylenol PM? Guess what? 25 milligrams of generic Benadryl is in Tylenol PM. So you may have noticed, if you had issues with heartburn, when you happen to have taken Tylenol PM, you said, wow, I didn't have heartburn tonight. I don't know. Don't blame it on the Tylenol. That Benadryl may have helped you. Uh, what else do we do? Uh, we take it probably around 10 o'clock every night. 
We eat dinner, like I said, around 6 o'clock. Uh, we try to walk on the treadmill. Joe mostly walks on the treadmill before dinner. I try to walk before dinner because your stomach gets full, but I tend to walk on it afterwards more often than not. Not right away because, like, when you first eat, your stomach's kind of full. But I do wait that 20 to 30 minutes, and then I get on. If you guys hear Patty barking outside, I'm so sorry. Um, we're babysitting her. Uh, she's my daughter's dog from Brooklyn, and she's a great Pyrenees, and she's a hypersensitive hearing. I think she can hear things a mile away. But she tells us when people are around, our cars drive by. So thank you, Patty, for warning us. But anyway, um, I hope you found this helpful. And if you know someone who's got heartburn or battling it yourself, I hope this has been very helpful and that you guys feel better. Um, this is Nurse Amy. Thank you so much for listening. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alden, I'm Joe Alden, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.
Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. 